Welcome to church. Happy Mother's Day. Let's open in prayer. God, as we step into your word, as we get, uh, jump back into Hebrews, this sort of dense book, this heavy theological book um, that speaks about you and your place in history and your place in the church and your place in our lives, help this to not just be an exercise in digging through interesting connections or, or, or trying to understand uh, interesting historical events. Help this to be something that seeps its way into our hearts, that changes who we are, how we think about life, that changes our relationship with you. Help this to make you greater in our lives through your Holy Spirit. Let this not just be kind of uh, um, an academic exercise of, of digging through a book and trying to learn about um, the author and the context and all these things. Rather, let this be something that works in our souls and our hearts and our body as a church as we learn together. In your name, amen. This is our fourth week in the book of Hebrews. We spent time uh, in our first week in the introduction looking at this incredible chunk of verses, the first three verses, right at the very beginning, declaring who Jesus is, what gives him the right or the authority or the legitimacy to be elevated or set above everything else, to be seen as the ultimate prophet and the ultimate king and the ultimate priest, and most importantly, to be seen as and understood as God himself, as our Savior. Uh, and, and the pastor, the writer of this book, spends a big chunk of the rest of the book going into deeper detail, doing a, a deeper dive into these things, alternating between uh, warnings for this small church, sort of cautions for them, and then going back to Jesus and comparing him to these various people or beings or concepts that would have been held in high esteem in the Jewish tradition. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at angels, and we looked at how Jesus is better than the angels. He is distinct from them. He is above them. He's not just some spiritual being. He is God himself. And last week we looked at, uh, Darren looked at Moses and Aaron and how Jesus is a greater leader than these people, a greater person than these Old Testament heroes. He talked about the fact that Moses and Aaron resided in God's house, but that Jesus is the builder of that house. About how Moses and Aaron led God's people into a place of temporary rest but Jesus offers us a life of rest, internal rest, regardless of our circumstance or our situation. And we've been using this idea of greater, greater than, to frame these conversations because that's what the author of Hebrews seems to constantly be doing, is placing Jesus beside these different things or concepts or people and showing how he is greater. And today we're going to be taking a look at the third piece of his argument, the priesthood. And specifically, the author recalls a name that would have, like many of these other concepts, but maybe this is the most clear example, he recalls someone that we today think almost nothing about. For us, this is the sort of person that might come up in a game of Bible trivia. It barely shows up in Scripture. Uh, but the Hebrew people, for the Hebrew people, he was this intense 
source of fascination and focus and discussion, uh, even though, or maybe because, Scripture has so little to say about him. And that is the priest king that is found in Genesis 14, named Melchizedek. Now we could, I was tempted to, spend a half an hour just digging into this guy and, and, and what are the different theories on him, uh, but I'm going to take just a moment here at the beginning to give you some context for this Melchizedek character, and instead what we're going to do is spend our time focused on Jesus instead, which I think is what the author of Hebrews intended. But we do want to get a baseline going here. So Melchizedek, he only shows up in three places in the Bible. By far the most that is said about him is right here in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, which is where we're going to be spending our time today. Um, he gets more verses here than any other place in Scripture combined. Other than that, no other New Testament author speaks about Melchizedek, and in the Old Testament there are only two spots where he is mentioned. First, he shows up in the story of Abraham in Genesis 14. This is the whole story that we get, the whole picture that we get of Melchizedek. So Abraham, at this point in the story, he's Abram. He has just gone to war with 318 men. He's, he's won this kind of miraculous battle. He's gone to fight with these kings who have, among other things, stolen his nephew Lot away. He's won this battle and he's returning home. And as he's doing this, another king, the king of Sodom, comes out to meet him. Uh, but in the middle of that kind of, before the king of Sodom shows up, this other king sort of sneaks in, comes almost out of nowhere. We haven't heard about this guy before, and we never hear about him again, but he shows up in this place. And this is what it says in Genesis 14, starting in verse 7. After Abram returned from defeating uh, Keldor Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shevet, that is, the king's valley, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the entire biblical narrative around Melchizedek. He's a king. And that is also, surprisingly, a priest, the priest of God Most High. Now, keep in mind, he's not an Israelite. There are no Israelites yet. This is some foreign Gentile king who is also a priest. And this is the first time that the concept of priest or priesthood is brought up in Scripture. And he comes out with bread and wine, which is a sort of sacramental meal, and he blesses Abram by this God Most High, and then he directly praises this God Most High. And Abram, in a sign of respect and deference to the king, placing the king as above him in authority, gives him a tenth of everything. The end. Now Melchizedek doesn't show up again for hundreds of pages until he shows up in a psalm. This is Psalm 110, uh, verse 4. Psalm 110 is one of these messianic psalms that gets referenced so often in Hebrews, a, a prophetic psalm that was looking forward to the coming Messiah, speaking about a future son of David who was going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, the first priest, the, fir the priest king. Uh, and then this author in Hebrews just grabs this idea, this verse, and, and, and runs with it. And we get chapter 7 of Hebrews, which is this dense 
walkthrough of who Melchizedek is and what his relationship is to the typical line of priests in Israel, the Levites. And he sort of holds up this mystical figure as someone who is, well, let's just read. Let's read the first couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 7. There are some big ideas that he presents here. This Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews says, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, some confusing statements are made about Melchizedek here. And people have understandably been wrestling with this question for thousands of years. Who is this guy? And where does he come from? And why does the author of Hebrews take what feels like this kind of bit player in Scripture and elevate him to this crazy status? Are, are, and there are many theories that have developed about who he could be. Is he an angel? Is he Seth, the son of Noah, showing up? Some have argued that he is pre-incarnate Jesus, that this is Jesus himself showing up to Abraham. But whatever the truth is about this Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews uses this character to make a point about who Jesus is. The chapter isn't about Melchizedek. The chapter is about Jesus. And in fact, maybe it's a good time to take a step back just a little bit and try and understand or remind ourselves of the big picture of what the author of Hebrews is doing here when he brings up all these different examples. Because I think I see that he's trying to do maybe three things uh, as he talks about these things, and it's helpful for us to keep this sort of the objectives of this author in our heads as we read through this book. So first, what he is doing is he is referencing things that his audience cares about or are familiar with and using that as an entry point in. Uh, I think of this a little bit as uh, uh, like going to speak at some convention or conference somewhere. Let's say maybe a youth conference. You're going to speak at a youth conference, or I was going to speak at a youth conference of like 12 to 15-year-olds, junior youth, who I was with for many years as the junior youth leader here. And you're trying to figure out this crowd and how to connect with them and how to make the message relevant to them. And what you end up doing is you end up looking for entry points into their world, right? You would try and bring things to their level in order to act as a hook or a magnet to kind of draw them up to the point that you're trying to make. You might take some time to watch popular movies or, or listen to popular music or, or, I don't know, download TikTok to try and figure out what are these people interested in? What does this group care about? And then you would use those things as a bridge that people could kind of walk over to get to your larger point. And that's very much what this pastor is doing here, I think. His audience, these former Jewish people who came out of a tradition focused on the Old Testament in a culture that was obsessed with angels, that understood deeply how priesthood worked, the concept of sacrifice that revered Moses as an ultimate hero. These are things that the author is using as a bridge to walk them over to the point that he is trying to make about Christ's identity. So that's number one. Uh, number two is he's reminding the church how God has been faithful throughout history. In my message on the angels, I referenced that verse uh, in Colossians that said all things were created for him, for Christ. And that verse can also be translated all things 
are created toward him. And that, that's a beautiful image to me. It's maybe the thing that has sat with me most or resonated with me most as we've been going through Hebrews. It's just getting deeper and deeper in my soul that the universe, the universe has momentum. Everything is created with direction. Everything is pointing somewhere. It's moving somewhere. And Christ is the center by which all these things hold together, by which all these things are drawn. Everything that has happened and will happen in some way points us towards our Savior, towards our Creator. And so the author of Hebrews talks through these Old Testament concepts or ideas, and it's not that they're bad, and it's not that they weren't of God. And over and over again, he goes, look at how God did it in the past, and look at how those things now, in the light of Christ, point so clearly towards God's ultimate plan in Jesus. The priesthood is a great thing, but boy, now we see it as something that was pointing towards something greater, something more. Angels are powerful guardians and protectors, but through Jesus, we see more clearly that they serve something greater than themselves. Everything points towards Jesus. It's amazing. It's this common theme that is woven throughout Scripture, and as the author of Hebrews starts to pull on this thread, he sees it connected and showing up everywhere throughout the entire tapestry of the Bible. And that ties into the third thing that he is doing, which is cautioning the Hebrews to hold things in proper perspective. It's dangerous to get too fixated or focused on the old way of doing things over the new. Recall the opening line to the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Those things were good, but they were pointing towards something greater than themselves. Angels are cool. Melchizedek is this fascinating figure this that had really become larger than life in the Jewish imagination, and yet these things are fascinating, and, and, they, and they represent what God was doing in the past, and they have their purpose, and they have value, and God used these things for his purposes. They weren't mistakes, but never confuse, uh, like Darren was saying, never confuse those who happen to live in the house for the one who actually built the thing. The author of Hebrews is walking through these things together with the congregation to try and ultimately point them towards Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the good things that God has been doing throughout all their history. And in this chapter, he focuses on the priesthood, on the idea of priests. And here again, we bump into this issue where it takes a little bit of energy for us to get into the headspace of a first century Jewish Christian. For us, the idea of priest uh, is a bit of a confusing concept. Uh, certainly, the idea of a priest in those times is a confusing concept. It's something we come across in Scripture often, but not in everyday life. But to the people of that time, priests were everywhere. There was no real religion that existed, Jewish or otherwise, that didn't have priests, that didn't have a priesthood of some kind, and everyone was religious. There was no such thing as an atheist. So every person was involved in some kind of religion, and every religion had priests, and so this was just the way that life worked. It was the concept of a priest was second nature. Thankfully, in Hebrews we get a great, concise definition of what it means to be a priest. Just a couple of chapters earlier. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for their sins. 
So that's the deal. A high priest is someone who is selected from among the people, is set apart to represent people in matters related to God, that he is appointed to intercede or to advocate on our behalf, on the people's behalf. There are two analogies that I've heard on this that I want to get into to just sort of help flesh this out. The first is the idea of a mechanic. I got this uh, from Tim Mackey. And so I drive a car. It's not going to surprise any of you. My car has an engine, and that's not going to surprise any of you either. But most of the time when I'm driving, I'm not really actively thinking about my car's engine. I just get in the car, I turn the car key in the ignition, the car goes where I want it to go. And occasionally something goes wrong or needs maintenance, and, and I open up the hood for some reason, and there's a, a short list of things that I can handle by myself. I can top up fluids. I can jumpstart a battery. Uh, I can even potentially change a, f uh, a fuse if I've got internet connection in Google, and it can help me out with these sorts of things. And so I've got, there are some things that I can do, but as soon as anything is smoking or grinding or, or, or bumping, uh, or anything like this, it's completely out of my league. I have no idea what to do. I'm out of my depth. And so this is what I do. So, so follow me here on this example. I recognize the problem, that my engine isn't working properly, that something is broken. So I take my car to a specific physical location, a set-apart space that are staffed by experts or specialists who have an elevated status, who have training on cars that I do not have, who are dressed in a specific way befitting of their role and responsibility in coveralls, who take my car and perform a series of traditional acts and practices on my vehicle. And they may have done these things before for other cars as well. These are things that they have written down in a series of manuscripts that tell them how best to work with vehicles. And when they're done, when they've done what to me is essentially a set of mystical rituals, my car has been healed. It's been cleaned. And now it runs again as it's supposed to. And I take it and I drive again, and I understand that in another five or 10 or 20,000 miles, something is going to happen that will require another trip to the temple or to the service station to, hire, to have these mechanics once again diagnose a problem and fix something that I could not do on my own. I need a mediator. I need a translator. I need someone in between me and my engine in order to help me fix problems that I can't fix or don't know how to fix on my own. So that's one picture of what it is that a priest does for us. Uh, and this is maybe a more common analogy, my second one here, but it's a good one too, the concept of a lawyer. Uh, so there have been studies done over and over again about how we perceive uh, our own faces. I'm going to get to the lawyer yet, I promise. Uh, just enjoy the journey as we get there. Uh, we look at ourselves every day. And actually what happens is because we look at ourselves every day, because we're so close to ourselves and we're so kind of overexposed to ourselves, it means that we don't actually really have a great concept anymore of how we look. I remember a senior, not, not from this church, uh, but, a, but a senior I was talking with, telling me the story of going to church on Sundays and making an intentional effort to be a cheerful person and smiling at people and, and everyone seeming kind of cold or distant, not responding to her warmth or her smiles. And she grew increasingly frustrated. Here she was trying to be friendly and everyone else wasn't returning that friendliness. What was going on? And one day when she went home after the service... What she did was she looked in the mirror, and she smiled, and she went, oh, <laughs> that's why. 
She, she felt on the inside that it was this bright, beaming smile, and she looked in the mirror, and what she was seeing was kind of a scowl. And, and she goes, I had a complete disconnect between what I was trying to do and what was actually happening on my face. And, and it's more than just our faces. We're bad judges sometimes of our own character. It's difficult to analyze ourselves. Are we likable? Are we approachable? Are we popular? Are we warm or cold to the people around us? How do we come across? It's just incredibly difficult to make that assessment of ourselves. And many of us go through life second-guessing or wondering, how am I coming across here? What do people think of me? And these sorts of things. And, and very often, uh, we don't get it totally right. We're not great judges of our own character. So, a lawyer does two things for us. But first, a lawyer provides us personal counsel, expert opinion on the situation and our role in it. What we do or don't deserve, what we have or haven't done, where we truly stand. Not just where we think we stand, but where we actually are. Here's why I start with that thing about our faces. We desperately need wise, knowledgeable, learned people outside of ourselves, but who are in our corner to speak truth to us about who we are, about our gifts and our flaws and our successes and our failures. And a good lawyer does this. You go to them for advice. They assess the situation. They speak honestly with you about where things are at. They diagnose the problem and they give you solutions uh, to redeem or resolve the situation that you're in. And additionally, maybe more importantly, a lawyer mediates between us and a judge. More than mediates, a lawyer advocates for us. They step into the judge when the judge addresses us, it's the lawyer who responds to the questions, who expertly navigates the rules and the regulations, who sticks up for us, who pleads our case with expertise and compassion and empathy. And, and so a priest fills these roles. They diagnose issues, they help us understand where we stand in relationship to others and to God, and then they go into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, they approach the bench, and they intercede on our behalf. They advocate for us with the sacrifice of animals. They ensure that the penalty is paid. They restore right relationship. That's the role of a Levitical priest. But the author, through chapter 7, lays out this multi-tiered argument comparing Jesus to Melchizedek as an alternative to this line of Levitical priests. And it's dense and it's tough to wrap our heads around. And there's lots of good stuff there, but it's not super accessible. It's like eating a pomegranate or, or, or pistachios. It, it takes effort. You can't just eat it all quickly. It takes kind of, you got to pick through and you got to open things up and you got to work sort of slowly at it. Thank God then for verse 25. Whenever you're in a place in scripture where your brain is kind of starting to shut down a little bit, where you feel a bit overwhelmed by the information that's coming at you, if you don't feel like you're finding the point or understanding what is happening, look for this word that begins verse 25. Therefore. Therefore. Here's the punchline. Here's the summary. Here's the mountaintop of this argument. And Hebrews 7, 25 says this. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. This is what we land on. Jesus is the greater mechanic, the greater lawyer, the greater advocate, the greater intercessor. Because unlike the priests that came before him, unlike the systems of mediation that came before him, Christ is able to save completely, and he is able to save forever. 
He always lives to intercede for those of us who come to God through him. Priests are human. There are good ones. There are bad ones. If you happen to have a good one, eventually he's going to die. And if he makes a sacrifice, eventually you're going to need another one. The cycle never ends because it is for humans by humans. It's never going to perfectly solve the issue. It's a never-ending treadmill. Jesus saves us completely, and he saves us forever, ongoing, perpetually. There's something beautiful about that verse, the way it's phrased. He always lives to intercede for us. Sometimes we think of salvation as this moment where a switch flips. It's all about that one decision, but salvation in its way is an ongoing process, and we are being actively saved in every moment of our lives. We are being continually advocated for, represented in heaven by our high priest, Jesus. It's an amazing image. As we head towards our close, there's a danger uh, in, in, in twisting and misunderstanding that image. Uh, it can become a little bit overwhelming to think of the idea of Jesus as actively interceding for us, arguing our case in heaven every day, that he hits the like, clocks in at nine in the morning and pulls out several billion case files and flips through them all till he gets to Penner and pulls it out and opens it up and has to go to God and argue through each of these little things and walk each infraction through. And it feels like that cast a bit of a shadow over my heart to think that way. It feels like one of these days that system is going to break. There's going to come a point where God is finally going to lose his patience. And Jesus is advocating for us, and he's saying, I know he messed up, but he was trying. He's a good guy. He didn't mean it. He says he won't do it again. He promises. Well, what's the day? What, what's going to happen when God finally gets tired of that? And it's important that we understand that that is not how this works. It couldn't be farther from the truth of how this works. First of all, we need to always be careful when we're using analogies or word pictures or examples to describe God. I heard a pastor say that just because Jesus says he's a door doesn't mean we can get splinters. Just because Jesus is the bread of life doesn't mean he's made of flour. We think of Jesus as our advocate or our intercessor or our lawyer or our priest, and that gives us an essential aspect of who God is to us, but don't let it bring us places it wasn't meant to take us. God and Jesus are not somehow at odds up in heaven arguing about the sins of people. God and Jesus are unified on the plan of salvation from beginning, are unified in their posture of love towards the whole world. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is the perfect image, the perfect impression of God. They have the same mind about these things. We can't take literally every aspect of this possible analogy. It's meant to paint a very specific image of a very specific part of Jesus' character and role in our lives. Being a Christian, our identity as Christians, doesn't just mean that we follow Christ. doesn't just mean that we pay attention to his example, that we try to do the right things, that we try to look more like him, that we try to be enough. Being a Christian means that we are called to be in Christ. Darren preached years ago on a, on a passage. I can't actually remember which one. It might have been Romans 13 or Galatians 3. There's a few different places in Scripture that mention this idea. It's a recurring theme, but he talked about the idea of clothing ourselves in Christ. Maybe you remember this, and he used the example of a mascot. We put 
on Christ. We find our identity in him. And as we do that, this incredible thing happens. When Christ is our representative, when Christ advocates for us, when we are in him, when we stand before God, God looks at us and he sees Jesus. He sees what Jesus has done for us. He sees his blood, his sacrifice, which justifies us, which makes us clean. More than that, it makes us beautiful. It is so incredible and so powerful what God has done for us through his sacrifice, what Jesus has done, that justice now becomes synonymous with grace and freedom. God has freed us from our sin. There's a quote by a British pastor and theologian, Martin Lloyd, Jones, that really drives home this point. Listen to what uh, Lloyd-Jones has to say about salvation in the context of Jesus as our high priest here. I think this is a good uh, point to close on. He says this, to make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say, now, are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And they hesitate. And then I say, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And so often people say, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And at once I know I've been wasting my breath. They are still thinking in terms of themselves. They have to do it. It sounds very modest to say, well, I don't think I'm good enough. But it's a very denial of the faith. The very essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. As long as you go on thinking about yourself like that and saying, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not good enough, you are denying God, you're denying the gospel, you're denying the very essence of the faith and you will never be happy. You'll think you're better at times and then again you will find that you're not as good at other times as you thought you were. You will be up and down forever. How can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you have almost entered the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you are guilty of murder, as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Jesus is greater than our sins. Jesus is greater than our failures. Jesus is greater than, than the band-aid, than the imperfect impermanent system of priesthood that came before. If we find ourselves in Christ, if we belong to him, if we give ourselves to him, then the question never again needs to be, are you good enough? The only question we have is, is Christ good enough? Is Jesus good enough? We can feel like we're not worthy of God's grace, like we're not good enough, that we haven't changed enough, that we don't believe enough, but it doesn't matter. We are in Christ. We are represented by and bought by and covered by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. He has been positioned as a new kind of priest. He is, as Hebrews walks through in chapter 7, he is a king of righteousness. He is a king of peace. He is without beginning and end. He is with indestructible life. He will never need to be replaced. We needed something greater than the Levite priesthood. We needed something greater than Abraham. We needed a new and great priest, and the author of Hebrews says, you got him, you have him, he is Jesus, and he is therefore able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Amen?